Hey, this is Drew Wilmisher, and you're listening to the Wilmisher Music Podcast. W-I-L-M-E-S-H-E-R-R That's how you spell this awesome name, and you say it, Wilmisher. W-I-L-M-E-S-H-E-R-R I'll sing some songs if you sing along while I play this here guitar. That's how you spell this awesome name and you say it will mature. This week I'm joined by Rebecca Stevens Walter. She is a Renaissance woman uh, with an expertise as a musician, a theologian, a teacher, a coach, and she is a pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn in New York City. She's a North Carolina native who trained as a classical musician throughout her childhood and college, uh, and then moved to New York City in 2012, and she graduated from Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York uh, in 2017. She has worked on uh, all kinds of liberation theology and helping people, you know, the public bring folks from the margins and back into the sort of the center, you know, the folks that maybe society isn't sure what to do with, and then they remind everyone that everyone has value and everyone has uh, something to bring to the table and to the experience just by being people. Um, as a musician and recording artist, she uses the arts as sort of this connective tissue in all of her work that inspires liberation of all generations. And she believes what I believe, that everyone has a beautiful voice. In fact, I found uh, about Rebecca Stevens-Walter uh, one day on YouTube when she was doing a YouTube Live, and she was just so engaging and fun. And singing along um, and it was uh, billed as children's ministry but it was a lot more than that and uh, I'm just very excited to for this conversation that we had about this radical love that we find in Jesus's message right In Wilmshire News, I'm excited to announce that on Saturday, October 8th, I will be playing at Oakhurst Porch Festival in Decatur, Georgia. So be sure to check out the website, wilmshire.com, for information about time and location that I'll be playing. The Oakhurst Porch Fest is super fun because it's uh, musicians on people's front porches, and you wander around from yard to yard in this neighborhood in Decatur, Georgia, and you listen to good music and you're having fun. Early October is like a really nice time to be in Georgia. It's a great, uh, usually good weather. Usually it, everyone is just enjoying themselves and it's free. So it's low cost, low pressure. Uh, just come enjoy some good food. Uh, there will be drinks, there will be music. It's just a great way to spend a Saturday and I'm excited for it. Be sure to follow me on social media at Wilmisher Music or at Wilmisher, uh, and you will, you'll be able to keep up with when I'm playing, where I'm playing, uh, music that's coming out, when a new podcast drops, and don't be afraid to sign up for the email list uh, on Wilmisher.com. I don't send out a whole lot of spammy messages all the time. Uh, I just like to keep people in, uh, keyed in to what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. Because um, I like to see y'all. That's the thing for me is I like to see people face to face. So be sure to come on out and enjoy uh, Saturday, October 8th, the Oakers Porch Fest. Be sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And uh, sign up for the email list so you know when things are going. You'll be in the first in the know. Now let's get to my conversation with Rebecca Stevens-Walter. 
Well, welcome, Rebecca Stevens-Walter. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for, for being willing. This is so fun for me. Uh, I've been enjoying this experience uh, just in terms of getting to meet new people. Mm -hmm. um, I've spoken with uh, folks who have varied interests around, you know, music uh, and ministry, but you're the first person that I've interviewed who, you know, you, you are the Venn diagram in the middle. You are both music and ministry <laughs> at the same time. It's true. And I'm, I'm, I'm very um, adamant that I make the distinguish distinguishment that I'm not a music minister yes. because that's a very specific job yes, um, of which I do not do. Um, I'm a minister who uses music in my ministry. Yes. Yeah. And that is a very important distinction. Um, I think that there's an idea, you know, when people hear, you know, as a bunch of certain words put together, they develop this mental image, of, right. uh, you know, an ex expectation of what that means. Right. Um, and especially, especially around music, when you say you're a musician in the, tr in the church, I think the automatic assumption is either an organist, a choir right. director, right. or someone who's wearing a wide brim hat, you know, and they've got, they're joined by 50 other musicians on stage. Right. And everyone has a microphone. <laughs> That's not me. So like you, you are, you make music and mm -hmm. you do ministry mm -hmm. and those sometimes overlap, but not always, not always, but I hope often, often very nice. Yeah. Well, well, tell me what, what do you do? Uh, introduce yourself, explain where you are, what you do. Sure. So I am, <clears throat> I have talking about wearing hats, many hats. Um, yes. We talk about in, in, in ministry now that, it, it, most people have to be either bivocational or tri-vocational or, you know, we're all um, doing many things. So um, one of my ministries is that I serve as the minister for um, intergenerational culture and children, youth, and families. <clears throat> it's a long title. Um, at the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn uh, here in New York City, I live in Brooklyn and um, in that work, I am also, um, so when I joined First Pres um, last year in that role, they also partnered with me um, to start a nonprofit. So for a long time, I've been um, doing some digital ministry. Um, I uh, have a, a YouTube, three, two YouTube series and um, one Instagram series. Um, and so you can check that out on my YouTube channel. Um, but so I was doing digital ministry for a long time. And basically my goal was to create content that churches or organizations or individuals could use as resources, um, who maybe didn't want to like go into a physical church building or were, you know, um, looking for digital resources. And so basically what the partnership between the nonprofit and First Pres, it's called, the nonprofit is called Four People Media. And Four People Media um, is going to be um, a streaming platform, much like um, Netflix or Hulu, um, with um, strictly progressive faith-based um, digital content. And so, oh goodness, I am getting a notification. Let me turn that off. Wow. And um, <laughs> okay. Um, and 
So we are fundraising this year, actually, um, to launch the platform. Um, we have three acquisitions that we are going to um, make, uh, uh, hopefully make ha have contracts with this year. Um, the content is, like I said, it's progressive, but I want to be specific that it's um, queer inclusive, intergenerational, um, it's intended to be accessible for folks with different disabilities and abilities. And um, so, uh, yeah, so that's that's the other job that I do. Um, I'm building that. I also have two kids um, and a partner. And um, yeah, I, I do uh, a lot of some freelance music um type work. I just played a wedding for the first time in two years. If you can imagine weddings are a thing now. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I wear many hats, but all of it is through a lens of um, a very, very progressive. I use the term progressive kind of very, like very progressive um, Christian <laughs> lens. Um, and uh, my work is, Oh, the other thing I should say, is that um, all of my work is um, sort of rooted in a children's liberation theology. So my um, master's thesis in seminary was um, the first that I know of, because um, I've researched it, uh, but the first that I know of academic children's liberation theology a theology of children's liberation. Um, I was a student of James Cone and James Cone is the father of black liberation theology. And he taught me, gave me some language for kind of what I had been doing for years, which was um, trying to get the church, trying to get Christians to understand um, the oppression of children. And so uh, so I wrote this children's liberation theology. And of course, over the years, it has shaped and molded and evolved. And everything that I do um, in work as an intergenerational minister, as a musician, um, as an artist in general, as a nonprofit builder, um, is founded in a, um, a, a call, a mandate um, to work for the liberation of children. That is amazing. So that is, I, you know, in my head, I'm picturing, um, I had an old children's book when I was little uh, called Caps for Sale. And it was about a fella who just wore, you know, at least 20 different hats on his head and it went straight up and he would walk through the town going, Caps for Sale, five yeah. cents a cap. And they get stolen and he has to get them back from, you know, the, this, this tree full of animals and they've all taken a hat and he's like, give me back my hats. Um, but you, uh, do a little bit of everything. Um, that's amazing. So the thing that jumps out to me the most, uh, that I want to ask more about, uh, children's liberation theology. Yeah. Um, you know, that this, my wife, uh, Emily is, uh, an intergenerational minister as well. Um, they just changed her job title from children, children to pastor, or pastor to children, um, to something like, uh, pastor of caring. And she uh, basically does older adult ministry as well as children's ministry and uh, bridges the gap. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, when she was in seminary, she worked on something, uh, a focus on children's rights. 
Yeah. So this idea um, that's sort of coming to light that children uh, are, you know, they're people. <laughs> they're not, you know, half formed. They're not waiting to become. They are now. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I'd love to, to know just a little bit more, you know, when so you come across someone who total blank slate you know, children's liberation. And you're like, well, what are we liberating them from? You know, <laughs> what great is question. <laughs> I get that question a lot because people equate um, capitalistic financial resources as a source of liberation. So they say, well, my kid has all the toys that he could ever want and they go to the best school and my kid never wants for anything and they don't have to do chores. So my kid is pretty liberated. <laughs> <clears throat> That's not what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> children's liberation theology um, states that God is on the side of the oppressed. Any liberation theology states that. So queer liberation theology, womanism, feminist, it all says God is on the side of the oppressed. That is the biblical narrative. That's the good news and that, or some of the good news, I should say. And so children's liberation theology, um, my, my children's liberation theology, I know I'm not, so I, I said I've written the only academic text. I know I'm not the only children's liberation theologian. There is a, um, uh, an, uh, a professional, There's a there are people doing this work. I should say that. Um, and so my colleagues and I have very varied ways of talking about this. But for me, children um, in our society, and I'm really talking about America, because um, that's my context. Um, and my context is also white America. My context is also um, the southern United States is where I grew up. Um, and so there's some of that coming into this. But children in this country are um, oppressed for one reason that I see, which is blankly clear, which is that they don't have voting power. There's no, if, if voting, if democracy, right, is the big, you know, is the big thing that we all use to get along, children are not included in that. They're not included in that process um, in any way. I mean, we don't ask for children's opinions. We don't invite children on to any kind of governmental um, committee or organization. Children are not included at all. And so children cannot really truly advocate for themselves. And that in itself is an oppression. Um, in the Christian church, um, and the, the reason why this is a theology as opposed to just for me, children's rights, which is what I was calling it for a long time. And then I was like, no, there's a biblical mandate for this. This is, this is biblical. This comes from God. And so what, what the Bible tells us is that God was also an oppressed child. Um, God came to earth um, and, and in the form of a baby um, was born in meager, meager, meager circumstances um, was then a refugee um, and was then with his parents, right? Um, and then was murdered by the state as a young adult. And so all of those things are what our children experience today. Um, children are not safe, um, basically ever. Um, 
And there is, again, there is not a state mandated um, mandate to, there's not a state mandated guarantee of intended safety, right? There, there's a lot of like, oh, we do this for children, but then we cancel each other. We cancel ourselves out with other things that we do. Um, and I could name a thousand things, but again, in the church, um, what that has, the way that has played out is several things. First of all, this idea that children are our possessions, um, that they are ours to, to somehow, I mean, to own, I mean, there, there's a, there is a, there is language in the church around the ownership of children. And so then we get into a situation in churches where we are segregating children and white folks are, might be more familiar with segregation oppression language as, as it relates to slavery. And so when I talk to white folks about this, I use that language, um, very distinctly. Um, and in fact, there's, uh, there was a paper written um, by a professor at the University of Virginia who said that, um, I'm sorry, Virginia Commonwealth. And, and the paper um, talks about how um, people who were enslaved were segregated in the church. And so there, so people who were enslaved had people who brought them white people who brought them to their white church. Right. But then they had to sit in like a separate place. Um, they were also like given special, special messages about how they were supposed to obey their masters. Um, they were told to be quiet. I mean, all of these things that we now do to children and that's this, you know, sort of, um, generational trauma, like that white people are going to oppress somebody right? It's going to be somebody. And if we can't have, um, a culture of, 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 of state, uh, sponsored enslavement of people, then we'll just do it to our children because our children have no voting power. So that's the short of it. I mean, there's so much more I could say. Um, I, one thing I will say too, is that children's oppression is, um, told throughout the biblical text. It's not just Jesus, but to me, Jesus is sort of like the ultimate um, example. Um, but there is children's oppression all over the Bible. Um, and the Bible itself is, um, you know, I say to people like, look, this is not a children's book. This is, this is a, this is a very grown up text in terms of, you know, violence and death and all of those things. Um, and so when people ask me things like, you know, how do I read, you know, difficult stories in the Bible to children? And I'm like, how about you don't like, how, about, you know, <laughs> or how about we say, look, um, this is what, this is my, this is my language. So folks who are watching, like, you don't have to use this language, but this is what I say. The Bible is the story of humanity as it relates to God. And so, the, the story of humanity is ugly, right? It's not pretty. Nobody, story of humanity is violent and traumatic. And the Bible tells that story as it relates to God. And I find that fascinating in terms of children's liberation theology, because as it relates to God, again, God sent God to the earth in the form of a baby, and so again, that it's that biblical narrative that is just telling our own story um, 
in relationship to God. Because I think everyone has, too, this memory, you know, from their own childhood, that first moment that an adult treated them like a peer, you know, or at least, you know, acknowledged that they had grown a little, you know, that first, I remember, uh, you know, the first time one of my, my teachers came to my defense after I'd gotten Mm -hmm. in my first school fight. And it was because a group of older kids were picking on a friend of mine and I just, I kind of lost it and it would have been a bad day. And so I started swinging and uh, I could hear the teacher out in the hallway talking to my mom before she got to the principal's office saying, he's not wrong. He did nothing wrong. He's fine. This is just a consequence of something he ha- that happened, but yeah. he did the right thing. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, I, an adult standing up for me to, to my mom yeah. <laughs> at that point was still, you know, the all all knowing all seeing mom you know everything was still impressive to me about her (laughs) well and isn't that something that you that it surprised you that it stuck out to stuck out to you um that someone was advocating for you yes um and that to me says how rare it is um that it would be significant in a child's life for an adult (laughs) advocate for them right um yeah yeah and 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 i think you know i'm when you said i was trying to think when when was the you know when was the first time or when when was the time that i felt like that um there were many i mean you know i had i had helpful adults in my life growing up i think what what the oppression that I am unlearning in terms of my own oppression is um, sort of a sub sub, um, existence of purity culture. Mm -hmm. So I didn't grow up evangelical. I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist church, but I did grow up in a small town in the South. And so what I say is that I grew up evangelical adjacent. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so all of those, weird, ridiculous rules that are put on children, particularly little girls around skirts being too short, um, you know, uh, dressing too sexy or whatever, all that stuff um, was put on me, not just by the immediate adults in my life, but by this culture, right? This, 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 this system, um, you know, my school had a dress code and they would send you home mm-hmm. if your shorts were too short, which, you know, the logic, you know, to me of that says, we really don't value girls' education. We really care more. Yeah. It is we really care more. That you cover up. Than yeah. That you continue learning. Yeah. And we value boys' education because we're not going to send them home if they're having trouble concentrating (laughs) because somebody's shorts are too short. We're going to send the girl home. And so that kind of logic that um, purity culture, the the ripple effects of purity culture um, are 
are when are, are the things that I um, really have to unlearn. And so there were times in my childhood when people just let me do whatever I wanted to do, um, dress however I wanted to dress, um, look however I wanted to look. And that was powerful. Um, and I do, I, you know, I'm grateful to have those moments to pull, you know, to draw on um, because I know people who, who grew up straight up evangelical, um, you know, I see, I see a lot of that struggle. Like, I don't, what do I wear if I don't wear long, you know, whatever the rule was. Right. There's, um, there is a lot of unlearning. There's just a lot of unlearning when you, when you learn that purity culture is at best ridiculous. I mean, let's just, let's just be clear. Um, But at worst, really, really, truly oppressive and traumatizing. And so unevenly applied. Oh yeah. You know, heaven forbid, you know, a young woman go through a growth spurt and suddenly the clothes that fit two weeks ago don't fit anymore. Or heaven forbid you be a taller than average woman who the the fashion designers are talking about. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> right? So, and then I, I also remember it always made me laugh because um, the dress code was always about, you know, girls cover up shoulder straps, you know, no less than two inches. You don't want to distract the boys, blah, blah, blah. But for guys, it was always, it was, you know, sagging pants was really popular when I was in right. time of dress codes. And they would always say, pull up your pants because no one wants to see that. You know, so as girls, you know, don't be distracting to the boys. Boys, no one wants to see you. No one. That's so interesting. <laughs> and all of these rules were placed on people in my context in the absence of any kind of real sex education. Oh, definitely. The to talk about the body was so taboo. It was just cover right. up. Right. Yeah. It was just oh, yeah. cover up. Don't have sex. Cover up your body. You know, don't don't do anything overt. You know, don't do any. Don't 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 don't. Right. Um, and right. And then and then there was just like a complete absence of any real um, education around. Okay. Well, then what do you do? <laughs> what can I, like, what is okay? What is healthy? And again, I think that's, that's where purity culture runs into oppression and trauma because it leads to people putting themselves in really dangerous situations. Um, and I can speak firsthand about that, but I can also, again, sort of as a system, as a culture, um, you know, we're not, we're not taught, um, what is what is actually healthy, right? It, 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 if, if the only thing you're taught is the only way to not get pregnant is to not have sex, um, that's really, I mean, again, just a completely illogical thing to tell anybody. But if that's what you're taught, um, going into adulthood is a really strange thing. It is. It right. Is. I remember like being afraid that if I sneezed on a girl, I was going to get her pregnant. I'm like, how what? does that happen? Right. <laughs> right. And I mean, how easy is this? Right. 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 So again, the, the oppression of children moves itself through into 
adulthood, right? And then what happens, just like any other oppression, just like any other generational trauma, we then have our own children and then we put all of our, all of our nonsense and garbage on our own children. Um, most I think because we don't know any different. And so when we hear people talking about breaking the cycle, cycle breaking and, and all of that stuff, um, that is actually really hard work because we're unlearning all of our own nonsense while also trying not to put it all on our children while also trying to give our children new tools. Um, And you can only give children the tools that you have. So you have to go get those tools for yourself first. That's right. Is this a a screwdriver or a hammer? That's right. That's (laughs) right. That's right. And, and let me speak to this because um, this is significant for you and the, and the work that your wife does as well. This is why the church is so important because children's liberation theology is not a parenting guide, right? It is not for parents to liberate their children only. And right. And and we know the school's not going to do it. We know public school is just, they're going to try. My parents were public school educators, and there are a lot of teachers and administrators out there fighting the good fight, but we know that school is also not the only place that we can expect children to um, experience liberation. The church has to be so strong in that effort yes. because the church is the last intergenerational space. And so if you are in an intergenerational space and for folks who don't know, intergenerational does not mean just children it, and it does not mean just families, right? Mm-hmm. It means 101 year old, one year old and everything in between. Oh, absolutely. Under one year old, of course. Um, so the church has to be part of the liberation conversation. Um, an effort. Um, and I'll say one more thing about children's liberation also, which is that other liberation theologies um, are, are settled in their own context. So what I'm saying is that like Black people do Black liberation theology, right? Mm-hmm. Womanism is Black women's liberation theology, effectively. Um, women do feminist liberation theology and children do liberation theology, of course, but the work for freedom and liberation cannot solely come from children. Why? Because they have no voting power. So adults (laughs) have to actually start and lead um, based on the, what they have learned from children. Okay. But, but adults have to actively participate in not in the liberation of children Um, because there is no such thing as a child only space in terms of like, okay, children created this space. They came up with the idea, they got all the stuff for it. And now it's only children that doesn't exist. Um, So, yeah. So, so yeah. I remember there was some like sing-along video that my parents used to put in, or maybe it came on PBS, I can't remember which, but the opening sequence was all of these kids, 
like ch- very much grade school age children running into like a TV studio and turning everything on by themselves and then operating the cameras by themselves. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so cool. I can do that. That, and it, you know, not thinking about how, okay, well, who's running the camera that's filming the kids doing all these things, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and who bought all that equipment, right? And who exactly. built the building that it's in and all that stuff. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> when i worked at hattie b's uh hot chicken restaurant here in uh, atlanta um, i remember we were about to open up and so we hadn't dealt with any customers yet and i was brand new to the restaurant the restaurant industry but a lot of other folks had been professionals for a while and they asked like, what do we do when someone asks for something that we can't give them? And the trainers were like, all right, so one thing you need to remember as you know, front of house employee is you don't get paid enough to say no. Um, if it gets to that, call a manager, but whatever it takes to get to a yes, you can make, we give you permission to make that happen. And I've been trying to tell people that like in the church with volunteers, when we when we're doing something like you don't get paid enough to say no, so That's whatever great. someone asks of you, we'll figure it out. You know? We'll figure it out. That's <laughs> great. I just I so all of this. I'm so curious. I, I have to ask. You know, on the musician side of things, you know, you're talking about um, the freedom to express yourself, the freedom to lean into, uh, you know, the yes and. Um, when you're making music, you know, do you see that as a moment? of, you know, helping kids and adults figure out how to express themselves, um, especially when you're talking about um, something that usually comes with a tempo and a rhythm and a key, you know, like there are defined um, compartments, you know, yeah. but it's still an expressive art form. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I'll say, I'll start it with this. Um, everyone has a beautiful voice. Everyone. Yes. Preach. Everyone. There is no voice, whether you use your hands to speak, whether you use a machine to speak, whether you speak with your vocal cords, there is no voice that God does not love and that God did not create. And because we're made in the image of God, that means they're all godly, in my opinion, beautiful. Yes. So that's how I start out everything. If I'm leading music, that's the first thing I say. You cannot sing this song ugly. You just can't. Now, you can do things that hurt your neighbor. You can <laughs> shout, you know, in someone's ear, and that's maybe not helpful. Um, but expression is is for me, some, so, so I'll say this, some artists might say that expression or art isn't about being beautiful, but I, but I think that, that our definition of beauty is mucked up, right? So, um, so any, any, any time anyone sings in their full self, how could that not be beautiful? Yes. Especially because the church has this weird thing about who has a good voice and who doesn't um how many times did i hear the phrase you know excellence is what is 
is what's worthy of God or something like that. Yes. And yeah. And so I, yeah. And so I think, you know, there's, so, so we have all these rules to unlearn. Um, And so, so I always start with that. Everyone has a beautiful voice. You can't do anything unless you're hurting your neighbor that is incorrect musically in term, in my, in my opinion, in that, in that moment. And, and I do bring that to everything. Um, the, the other thing I would say is that music is, for me, um, always a group project. I, I would say always. Um, that's, that's dangerous, but I think, I think it's always. I can't think of a time when music for me didn't include anyone else even if I'm sitting alone playing you know that time that I get to sit alone playing gets taken out into the world right as as like okay I've practiced my instrument or I've gotten really comfortable with these lyrics or whatever that is um so the music is always a group project and and when I sing in church, for example, I mean, it's, it's very simply like, if you want to sing along, sing along, right? Like that's whatever. But also in that is that the accessibility of music is, I think, a conversation that churches need to have, not just, is it too difficult, right? but who can even learn it? Like a three-year-old cannot hold a hymnal uh, for very long in my experience, right? Um, the average hymnal weighs three to five pounds. With and, that, with that onion skin paper too. Right. With, with, and with words and notes and all these words on the page and what is the, no. Um, so a three-year-old can't participate in that way. Neither can a person with arthritis, mm-hmm. neither can a person holding a baby, neither can, um, a person, I know that there are hymnals with Braille, but don't tell me that that's somehow widely available. And don't tell me that like churches are like, yes, here's the Braille hymnal this morning. No, like those things are hidden back on some dusty bookcase somewhere. So the accessibility of church music, I think is a really important conversation in terms of liberation and radical welcome. If, if the, if the music, I, I can't tell you how many new members come to all churches that I have worked at and say, I can't, I became a member because of the music. I love the music, the music, the music, the music. And if the music is such an integral part of why people are even there, imagine who's not there because the music doesn't serve them. And if the music served a wider population in terms of accessibility and if the music is so important, then those people then are like, oh, I'm here because of the music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that goes into everything that I do. So my songs, I don't write songs typically. I mean, I write-ish. Um, like, it's rare that I will write a full, like, verse, chorus, bridge type song. Mm-hmm. However, um, I have done work with an organization called Music That Makes Community, and music that makes community is um, it's a teaching organization. It's a nonprofit 
um, that teaches people how to sing paperless. So the paperless song movement, I mean, there's a movement to um, get away from paper um, in terms of church music um, and music in general. So they teach paperless singing and paperless singing is amazing. You can go to their websites, musicthatmakescommunity.org. And that's um, a great resource because they have also, they have their um, um, all songs. They have a database of a ton of songs. They have videos of people teaching these songs. So you can learn how to teach people songs paperlessly. Now, with that said, paperless singing is not fully accessible, right? Um, so one of the things that I do, um, and I don't do it consistently, but I'm learning to do it more is sign language, just American, just ASL American sign language, um, that helps make singing more accessible, not only to people who speak with, um, American sign language exclusively, but also for young children. So, um, young children, yeah, young children will, will come with you on movement often before they'll come with you on singing or words or whatever, especially if the words are heady, you know, um, so, right. So, um, so American sign language is one other thing. The other thing, and I know sweet little Protestant people don't want to hear this, <laughs> but, um, having, and having a screen in worship where the words are displayed and maybe they're displayed in Spanish or in, you know, whatever, in a different language. Um, but having a screen in your worship space where the words are displayed also increases accessibility. And if we've learned anything from mega churches, it's that they are really good at making sure that everyone, A, can get into their space. So every megachurch, I've done like research, right? And so every megachurch I've ever been to is fully handicapped accessible. You know, there are people in the parking lot with golf carts making sure you can get into the building. I mean, they make getting there so seamless and easy. And then once you're there, there's, there are so few barriers to participation, right? Um, this is my experience friends. So if you grew up in a mega church and that, that was not your experience, I, I I fully affirm that, but I, but in my experience, it was like, I mean, I took my children one time I was by myself and Hillsong had just opened their new campus on in uh, Washington Heights, which is where I used to live um, in Manhattan. And so it was really like right around the corner. And so I took my children one time and they were babies. I mean, I had the stroller and I had the bag and I was, uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and so I get there. First of all, they're laden with security, which I know for some people that stresses them out. But for me, I was like, wow, like this is, they really have safety in mind. That, that was, that was the first thing that came to my mind, but then I got in the building and of course people are hugging each other. This is pre COVID people are hugging each other. People are, can I get you something? Can I show you to the bathroom? I mean, just anything. And then, and then, um, they handed me ear covers for my baby. What? You know, like, we want to make sure that you can participate in worship 
and that it doesn't hurt your baby or whatever because it's going to be really loud. Right. And so I went into and I was like, this is really interesting. Like these people want to make sure that I don't have to leave worship because my baby is unhappy. Right. You know, there, there was, there was stroller parking, like someone showed me to the stroller parking. I mean, just again, and then I, oh, I could go on the, you know, you go up to the family room where they're piping in worship, you know, on the live stream. Right. And you know, the place is laden with beautiful toys and plush seating. And then there's, you know, multiple changing tables with organic diapers and, organic snacks and water. I mean, it's just, they have it set to where people are not going to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I talk about just having a simple screen in your, (laughs) in your sanctuary um, with the words to the songs up there, that, that knowledge, that, that knowing that that works comes from me seeing how these mega churches um, keep people there. Um, yeah. And, and so again, I, the, the theology of mega, mega churches is not for me, but um, they do a lot really well in terms of making sure it's a marketing, you know, it's, it's good marketing, frankly, um, which the Protestant church is really bad at. I think the term marketing scares people. Uh, so much, uh, and I've I've heard it recently, but in a different way. As an independent musician, like ninety eight, you know, ninety two percent of your time is spent on marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard it put to me like, good marketing is really just good storytelling. Exactly, really it's storytelling. You are for sure um, consistently, and, for sure, and repeatedly, and sure. so uh, I think that one of the things that mega churches have done is tapped into like the the multi-million billion dollars of research uh, done for, for marketing to yep. see like, where people are, what are, what are other people's stories? And yep. so they knew your story coming in as a mom with kids and a stroller, like these are the things that are going to be important, you know? <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm in seminary and they're like, well, just let people know where the bathroom is. Like, <laughs> and if even that, right. <laughs> if even right. that. That was the revolutionary and, idea too. And it was, right. it was revolutionary to say, oh, right. right. Parents want to know where the bathroom is. Right. And, and Protestant churches, the progressive church has an advantage over mega churches in this way because we're actually more welcoming. Right. So we can not only tell people where the bathroom is, we can tell people where the all gender bathroom is. Right. You know, right. we not only can tell people, um, you know, that your whole family is welcome here. We can tell people your whole queer family is welcome, is welcome here. Right. And not only is your whole queer family welcome here, but you can also serve in leadership. And, you know, so we actually can be more, uh, be bigger, uh, you know, than mega churches in that way. Um, I'll say two things about that. First of all, the reason why churches are not accessible um one reason is that um, so the churches churches lobbied to be excluded from the American with Disabilities Americans with Disabilities Act, right? So the ADA does not apply to churches, um, and that's because the church didn't want it to. Um, and the claim was that there was no money to update facilities. And let me just tell you, anybody who's listening, the church capital C is 
one of, or not, if not the wealthiest organization in the world. Okay. So collectively churches have billions and trillions of dollars. So to say, oh, we can't afford to put in a wheelchair lift is a joke. So uh, it's it's just not true. Um, And so, so churches are inaccessible. And what I tell people is if, if, if a, if a stroller can't go to that place, neither can a wheelchair and vice versa. So when you're excluding folks in wheelchairs, you're also excluding folks who, who are bringing their stroller into the building. Um, it's a different kind of exclusion. I just want to be clear, but, um, but, but, but that's the amount of people. I mean, you can imagine the amount of people who are not coming in because they simply can't. Um, the other thing I'll say and about that is that physically I, saying your body is not welcome. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I love that churches are saying all are welcome now. That's lovely. I love, you know, it's pride month and we're seeing rainbow flags hanging out in front of buildings and, you know, church buildings and we're seeing black lives matter flags and churches are marching and that's great. But if your building doesn't reflect that, if the place where you come together to worship and to learn doesn't reflect that, then it's not true. You know, then, then all are not welcome. I I wrote a piece um, there. So my writing, my blog is on medium. So you can look me up on medium.com. But I wrote a a piece called um, I need the church to be more like Chase bank and Chase bank is this, it's a chain of banks, right? And they're on every street corner, just about here in New York City. There's Chase banks everywhere. And so I have a Chase bank account. And pre-pandemic, I had to go into the bank, again, laden with down with my stroller and everything, um, my kids, and, you know, it was hot and da 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 um, And, you know, to get into the building, I mean, there's a push button to open the door, um, there was somebody waiting there to greet me with a smile. They spoke to my children. Um, they gave my children a treat after they asked me if it was okay. Like, you know, there was, you know, an abundance of pens available. <laughs> you know, there was what I needed to get done there. Um, and so I, I'm just like, again, that's, that's marketing, that's storytelling, that's knowing who is coming into your place and what they need. And um, the church is, again, in, in a learning in a learning place with that right now, I hope. Um, and I, I hope. hope that there would be also a comfort in uh, failing too. You know, like you're not gonna get it right the first time. Uh, these are new things and it's, it's okay to fail once and then you make a note and you continue. That's right, that's right. Um, the story in numbers, the, um, the, the, I want to say it's the daughters of Zalafahad, but basically the, Oh, um, I, I see what you're saying. Yes. Codified these laws. You know, the Hebrews are in the desert. They've codified these laws. This is how we'll organize ourselves as a society. Um, you know, and property being passed down from inherited from, you know, the death of one male heir to the next male heir and so on and so forth until unless there's just no one in the family, you know, then what is this, where does this property go? And the daughters of Zalafahad go to Moses and they say, we have no more male heirs, but this property is still in our family. And we would really love it if we could keep that instead of having to find some way into another family's land. Um, 
And so they uh, said, yeah, absolutely, we need to fix this. You know, they didn't say, oh, nope, that's the rules and we're going to stick with them. You know, there was a, a flexibility to say, this was a gap that we didn't know about and now we're going to fill it. Yeah. And so as the church being able to say, oh, we didn't know this gap existed until we encountered it. Yeah. Go ahead and just fill it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, what's odd about the church is that um, the the biblical text and my understanding of the Trinity is that it is absolutely fluid, right? That the Holy Spirit especially is uh, like the moniker of change. Um, and so for the church to be resistant to that is strange to me. Um, and I, I really think when we talk about traditional church, um, I always challenge people when they say, I'm like, do you know what people were doing for church about 1500 years ago, maybe 1700 years ago, because it wasn't this, this tradition that we talk about is very young and actually is not really, um, anything like. Um, what folks were doing a long time ago and, and not that we have to do that but 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 to think about like you said I call it the the idolatry of perfection yes. and you, the church just is obsessed with it you know we're just obsessed with things being perfect because that means it's godly right because God is perfect and I get I get all that but like I'm trying to queer this definition of perfect that perfection lies in fault right exactly and, I, and our comfortability our, our our ability to be comfortable with that i think about it in musical terms um i finished a book uh, recently called unlocking productivity but it what or no unlocking creativity mm-hmm. um, and it was a it was a produ- music producer's mindset Uh, that basically said, don't be rigid, don't stick to the metronome, don't try to lock in exactly on the click track of your your record. Um, And I heard that sort of echoed in an interview Yo-Yo Ma did um, on Song Exploder, where somebody played for him, uh, a cellist student in California who played the, the piece perfectly, like pitch perfect, right on time. And Yo-Yo Ma just goes, hmm, good, good, good cellist. Well done. Yeah, it was like, there's an air of sarcasm in that. Well, he was just very, he, he knew the piece, uh, but he didn't know how he wanted to play it. Um, exactly. If you want to, you just, you put in a, a little gracefulness. You fall behind the beat a little bit, and then you speed up in these moments. You know, you don't strictly adhere to these things that, that the faults are the beauty of humanity. Yeah. And think about that in terms of theology. Like, that's grace that says... You're not going to get it right ever and get up and you try again tomorrow a different way because you're allowed to like the failure is not the, the last word. Yeah, it really isn't. So. Uh, we are coming to a part of the conversation uh, that I like to refer to as the cool down round. All right. Um, these are just some sort of creative writing uh, questions that I, I ask myself, uh, that I ask others. Um, 
What is a, a memory um, from childhood that, you know, when you encounter a sense, uh, you know, a smell, a taste, uh, a color, or you know, even a time of day um, that mm-hmm. just instantly brings you back to a, a particular moment in your childhood? Yeah, I love that question. There's, there are many, but um, I, my grandmother uh, made pound cake that I still can smell. Mm. Um, and I have made pound the same recipe. I think it's the same recipe. Who really knows? Nobody wrote anything down. Um, <laughs> I've made this pound cake. My mother has, <laughs> my mother has made this pound cake, but it, it pales in comparison just to the distinct smell of that pound cake. And I think it was also just her house, like just her whole house um, smelled of this pound cake and her house. um, I spent a lot of time in my childhood there um, and I always found it to be a very interesting place. Um, She had interesting things. She had beautiful pictures. It was a small mill house in, in Kannapolis, North Carolina, but it was, to me, it was, it was really, really a neat place. Um, so I would say pound cake, um, which is, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 you know, yeah. Pound cake. Let's go with that. I, uh, you know, to keep in theme with the food, um, there, I grew up for a time in Panama city, uh, Florida. My dad was a pastor at a Presbyterian church down there. And, uh, one of the folks in his church would take him out on his boat and they would go fishing regularly which was just a real um, act of ministry on part of my dad because he would get violently uh, motion sick. And so he'd go out there with all a huge pack of Dramamine and all the things he could do to keep from getting sick. But yeah. they'd go fishing and he would come back with these coolers just full of King mackerel. You know, if it was King mackerel season, we'd just fill up our freezer. Yep. But then we would have, we had to eat it all. Right. So that was what we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next two weeks to make sure that it didn't go bad. But it was, it was great because uh, we would have the first, uh, the first few days, like really good King mackerel. But then the freezer had started to take effect on the fish where it got a little fishier, and it was <laughs> a little bit more of a dumpster odor, right. um, you know, but it was still like, we were like, how did... What happened? we didn't know what was going on. We just thought, Dad, I think the fish has turned. I think, and he's like, no, it's fine. Um, <laughs> what I had to go through to get this, um, you know, is more than just paying for it. You know? Right. <laughs> but, uh, but we did. We had a lot of fun with that. And so we would try, you know, to make as many fish dishes as we could mm-hmm. while we worked our way through this king mackerel. And so I, when I smell you know, fish, uh, you know, out in a restaurant or if I'm by a dock or a pier, you know, I just, I'm instantly transported to grilling fish in our backyard and pulling in this huge cooler. Wow. (laughs) Joking around with my brother and sister about, what are you doing with your fish? (laughs) I'm not eating mine anymore. (laughs) That's great. Um, so one of the things that, uh, I'm trying to, to do as Wilmisher is to, to give back. Um, and so I've been asking everyone, you know, what is a cause or a charity that you would like, uh, people to know about? And, uh, we'll post the website in the show notes and I will make a donation and others can make donations as well. Great. Um, that's really awesome. Well, uh, to, I, I'm going to say two. 
um, okay. if that's okay. Um, I would love for folks um, to support for people media. We are a nonprofit. And right now our fiscal sponsor is First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. And so you can send money via Zelle. If you have Zelle, um, that's a Chase Bank thing. Um, but you can send money via Zelle to First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. And that email address is info at firstchurchbrooklyn.org. Um, you can also send a check. But if you'll put four people in the memo, they'll know that it's for people. So I want to say that one. Um, the second one I want to lift up is Affirming Youth Ministries. Affirming Youth Ministries is a new organization, and it is um, just what it what it what the name implies. It is a youth ministry organization that is affirming. That means queer confirming, affirming. Um, gay, lesbian, LGBT, all the, all the things affirming. Um, they meet um, on Zoom. Oh, so, weird. yeah. So it's virtual um, youth ministry and they also do other programming and, 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 and things, but there is a youth group component. Um, so, you know, I, I imagine like, you know, the queer kid down in Mississippi, like under his covers with, you know, with his flashlight, like, <laughs> you know, going to youth group on his tablet or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, you know, that's, that's so affirming youth ministries, you can um, look them up and uh, support them um, and also get involved. Uh, my husband serves on the board and it's just a really wonderful organization. Folks who, um, uh, who started it are just really incredible folks. So. Wonderful. I will put all of those links in the show notes. Thanks. and people can follow you and see what you're up to. Uh, I always love, I love your Instagram in particular just because I feel uh, super cool, you know, knowing a banjo player in Brooklyn who does ministry. I'm like, you're the trifecta. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> it's so fun. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been a blast. Thank uh, you. You're delightful. I'm excited to keep up with for the people media uh, as well as uh, your your blog posts on medium and your YouTube do you still go live on YouTube I am on hiatus right now uh, mostly because again for people is raising money so it got to the point where I said and, and friends this is this is because of capitalism um, where I said I can't do this for free anymore um right and so um, i do have a patreon that goes directly to me if people want to contribute to my patreon but really um i'm trying to get some systemic support for the um for the live streams that i do and that it's coming through for people media so um so yeah so so i'm fundraising right now um and as as soon as we have a our sort of next chunk of funding um we're going to do some acquisitions and i hope that I hope that my live stream is one of them. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, yeah. wonderful. Well, I can't wait to see uh, more of what you're doing. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Drew. That was Rebecca Stevens-Walter. Don't forget to look for her on YouTube. You can follow her on Instagram at a new Rebecca, and you can find out more about her at her website, RebeccaStevensWalter.com. 
Don't forget to check out Four People Media uh, through firstchurchbrooklyn.org, or you can find her articles on medium.com. If you like today's episode or if you're enjoying the podcast in general, be sure to leave a review, tell your friends, share it with those that you love and cherish, those that you kind of like, and even people you despise. Let them know about this podcast and let them know about all the things going on in the world of Wilmisher. I believe that we are truly doing some good things out in the world, uh, making connections and making people feel known and seen through the power of music. I'm excited. Again, don't forget that I will be playing the Oakhurst Porch Fest in Decatur, Georgia on Saturday, October 8th. And be sure to check out Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Music for new music coming from Wilmisher in weeks to come. If you'd like more information more regularly, you can sign up for my email list at wilmisher.com. Until then, have a great week, and we'll see you next time.